Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are, we are going to embark on a journey in studying God's prophetic word and what in the world is going on in our earth today and in our culture, in our, in our world, in the church, and you just keep going on and on and we're going to hit a lot of topics, but today is kind of an introduction to prophecy in general and what's going on uh, in, from the biblical point of view. And so as we go on this journey, we are only going to study what the Bible says about it, not what Matt Freeman's opinion is on it, not what anyone else thinks about it. We're going to study what does the Bible say about prophecy and what, is the, what does God's word have for us? In, in this day and age. Now, when you study prophecy, because we're going to pray before we open here, the enemy will try to let fear sink in anytime you try to study prophecy because it's heavy, right? You look at the horizon of what's going on prophetically in God's word and this rise of a one-world religion, this rise of a one-world government, this track and trace system, uh, Christians being beheaded just for proclaiming the name of Jesus, you look at all of this and the spirit of fear will try to grip you and will try to cripple your walk. And you saw that in spades in 2020, uh, how many churches were gripped by fear. Fear is a ruthless slave master that will make you make a lot of poor decisions in your life. And we've not been given a spirit of fear as God's people so let's open by reading this passage here, 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 10. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. That's all of you. If you are in Christ, you have a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you, God, that we do not have a spirit of fear, we thank you, God, that you declared all of this in your word for us to have confidence in the days ahead, so that, Lord, as you declared, we should know the seasons of your arrival. We should know the seasons that we're in prophetically based on the word of God. And we thank you, dear Lord, that we have one another to lean on, that you are raising up a remnant all over the world, that is passionate about your word. And God, we thank you that you have given us 
a spirit of sound mind, power, and love that is washed by the water of your word. And Lord, no matter what we see going on in the world around us, we pray that you would rebuke any spirit of fear that would try to step into our lives. We thank you that you are victorious over it, God. Be with us and teach us everything out of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, I want to open with one of my favorite quotes uh, from Chuck Missler. I believe you, this is what he said. He he said this a lot when he would open up his Bible studies, but he, he said, I believe you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than any other period in history, including when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. And then he, what he would do is he would say, that is a preposterous statement, but I challenge you to go read the Bible and, and prove me wrong. You know, it was his challenge to, to people in his Bible study. And it's true, he's absolutely right. You and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than any other period of time in history. And so if we can study God's word from cover to cover and understand what does he say about this time that we're all heading into, I think it'll strengthen you, it'll equip you, and it should cause you to have a sense of urgency in living for Christ now. It, it should not cause you to sit back and kick your feet up and say, well, we're being raptured out of here soon, uh, time to, to just sit back on our laurels and not do anything for the kingdom. If, if, that, if it has that effect on you, you're studying it the wrong way because you and I should be passionate about running for the Lord as hard as we can when we see what's on the horizon. So the vast majority of God's word is prophetic. You know, it's just a matter of whether it's come to pass or not. That's really the question. And why does the body of Christ stay away from studying prophecy in God's word? These are some things I've heard in the past. It's too confusing, right? How many of you have heard that? It's too confusing to study prophecy. We can't do that. Well, who's the author of confusion? First Corinthians 14, 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So God did not write it for you and I to be confused about it. If you, if you read God's word and it's confusing to you, that's not from the spirit of God. That's the enemy trying to, to take away, remember the, the parable of the sower, where the, the birds of the air, the ministers of Satan would come and try to take it away? That's what that is. Okay, there are too many opinions. Well, that's true, but there's only one author. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. See, there are a lot of opinions out there about prophecy when you study it. it what's this rapture thing about? Is it post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, no-trib? You know, what is going on here? You can find people that try to pull scripture out to fit their opinion on that case all over the world. But it's not their opinion that we're interested in. It's what does God say about it? And what would God have us through the Holy Spirit understand about it? So there's only one author. I just want to focus on Jesus. I'm sure all of you have heard that before. I I don't know about this prophecy stuff. I just want to focus on the red letters, you know, in the Gospels. Just what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus talked a lot about prophecy. But I will tell you this, Revelation 19.10 
And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. Remember, John gets the message from the angel, and he's trying to worship him. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. Okay, so there's something about Jesus that is prophetic. The thing that you need to understand, anything prophetic in God's word points to Jesus. It's all pointing to him. And so if you keep that in mind, it's important that we study it. And so prophecy is one of the lone characteristics that God has in this book. You know, this book is, is absolutely supernatural. This book right here. No other book in history writes, its, writes history in advance to, to complete precision. No other book. And that's why Isaiah 46, 9, 10 means, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God's the only one that can declare the end from the beginning because he sees it all at once. He is outside of our space-time. He sees everything. One of the many ways God authenticates his message is by prophecy. No other holy book, I'm using air quotes, in the world can predict history in advance. It undeniably authenticates that this message system has to come from God. And the enemy would love nothing more than to cripple your understanding to keep you distracted from ever studying it. Because I'm telling you, once you understand prophecy and God's word, you will never, ever have the same relationship with God. You will never look at the word of God the same. You will look at it as what it is, a supernatural book from a supernatural God and our King Jesus. So our perspective of time is really one major hindrance into studying prophecy. You know, we, we live in such a world of now, especially today. I mean, you can, with a face ID, you can have something delivered on your doorstep in less than 12 hours. You know, it is, we live in this world of, it's got to be now. It's instant gratification. It's instant shopping. It's, you can't even, people don't even want to go to the grocery store anymore. They want it just delivered on the doorstep. They need it so quickly. You know, and you think about anything for Christmas shopping. I've got to just do it now. I've got to shop and get it delivered to my house in 24 hours. But ironically, uh, we, are, we are conditioned to be the most impatient people to ever live on the earth. Really. We, we really are. Our generation, this, this world today, is the most impatient generation that's ever walked the face of the earth. And ironically, that attitude is an attribute of the end times from 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? I clicked on my phone and it hasn't happened in 24 hours. You know, what is going on here? Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, an attribute of of our people, including the church in the end times, will be a, one of scoffing, doubting God's promise of his return because nothing's happened since 2000, for 2,000 years, basically, since he promised it and ascended up to heaven. So God's word will come to pass. It's whether it happens in your timing or not, that's a totally different issue. 
but God's word will, will come to pass. Okay, when you look at the Old Testament, this is just a timeline from creation to the end of the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people call from 430 BC to the New Testament the silent years, and they use that kind of tongue-in-cheek because when Malachi closes, there's not another book written for, for 430 years until Matthew and the, the Gospels start. But those years are actually prophesied in advance in Daniel 11 with absolute precision. It's the time that the Greeks took over uh, Persia and Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided into four, up to four generals and they all fought each other, the kings of the north, the kings of the south, and they fought each other. It's all detailed in Daniel 11. So those years are covered in the Old Testament. Just keep that in mind. But this is a pretty neat chart. You know, don't get too hung up on exactly the years and when each book was written. It's very close. But this is a really handy chart for you in your study to look at to say, okay, when was, for example, Isaiah written? Isaiah was written somewhere between 740 and 701 BC. Look at what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So that would not happen for more than 700 years. It took 700 years for that passage to come to pass when Mary obviously conceived and Jesus was born. You know, Isaiah was probably at that time called a false prophet by a lot of people. You know, you, you prophesied something and it hasn't happened yet. It's tomorrow. What is going on? You know, you probably, I, can you just imagine the Jewish people around him that were throwing stones at Isaiah verbally and probably physically on this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Manasseh sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. We studied that in Hebrews 11, those that were sawed asunder. Isaiah said that he lived, he dwelt in the midst of unclean people and Manasseh did not like that, so he got sawed in half. You know, what we must do is get out of our own way and stop putting our timing on what God says. And you get, you get in trouble I'm sure all of you have heard about the books, uh, 81 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1981. You know, then there was some book about 74 Reasons It'll Happen in 1992 minus 18. You know, there's all these books out there about the timing and, oh, I think I found this new manuscript that has some kind of special date in it that wasn't hidden, but it was hidden before, and people write books about it and try to make money off of convincing you the... Uh, Y2K was it, right? I remember all of you, I'm sure all of you remember Y2K. Remember, I was in high school and we were, I didn't even know that it was a thing. We just were hanging out on New Year's Eve and had no clue that apparently the world was supposed to end when the clock turned over and all the computers on earth were going to go from 99 to double zero, right? <laughs> remember that? What a crazy idea. But anyway, we've got to get out of our own way. The same goes with our prayers. You know, God hears you. Be patient and behold the power of your God. Prayer doesn't always happen in our timing. I've been praying for a lot of things that have yet to come to pass, but I know that God hears me and that in his timing, it will. Because if you're praying in God's will, 1 John 5 says that he will hear you from heaven and act. And that has, that has a lot to do with praying for the salvation of people. But remember Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and of good courage, fear not, there it is again, don't fear, nor be afraid of them, for the Lord thy God, 
He is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Okay, there are some fundamental building blocks to prophecy that you've got to have in order for everything to fit together. Okay, anything you believe or teach biblically has to coincide with the entire counsel of God's word. It has to. If it's off anywhere, if God's word contradicts what you think somewhere, then you're thinking the wrong thing. And so I am not, to hear, I am not here to say that I have it all figured out. Uh, everything I say is absolutely 100% correct and accurate. I am giving you what I see in God's word and for you to go and be a good Berean from Acts 17.11 and build your own relationship with God. That's the key. So Acts 17.11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So you've got to go out, open God's word on your own, and search it out. Is this accurate? Will this come to pass? Okay, 1 John 2.27, you do that by leaning on the anointing that you have as the teacher. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. That includes me. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Okay, remember three times in God's word, he says, don't add to or take away from my word. So again, you've got to keep it all together. Okay, the key building blocks for prophecy, Israel, Israel, Israel. Uh, prophecy is strongly about Israel. If you look at your Bible, I put two bo bookmarks in here to show you an example. If you look at your Bible, from Revelation, from Acts 2, really, to Revelation, okay? Go home and hold up your Bible. It's really thick. This section right here has to do with the church. Everything else is Israel, Okay, we, we serve a Jewish God who uh, this book was written mainly by Jewish disciples and most of this message is for Israel. Now, a lot of it, it all, obviously all applies to us today, but keep in mind that God's word, the vast majority of it has to do with Israel, which is why it's a heresy within the church that's been brewing for a long time that the church has replaced Israel in some regard. But one of the things, so as we go on this study, what I, what I wanna do, we're gonna look at a couple of key building blocks today, the 70 weeks of Daniel, the rapture, a few of those key things. So the 70 weeks of Daniel going from when it triggered to when the Messiah came and then that gap that we're in right now until the rapture. And after the rapture, when the tribulation begins, Okay, what we're gonna do after today, moving forward, we're gonna look at when the tribulation begins, what's the environment? Okay, so if you see that environment setting up today, then you know it's closer, and if the rapture of the church has to happen before, then you know that we're even that much closer to going home. I hope that makes sense. So we're gonna look at today a couple of the key building blocks, because you have to have this foundation of Israel, versus the church, and where, who are we, and what's our role in this? And then after that ends, what is the stage going to be like, okay? So the difference between the church and Israel, who enters the seven-year tribulation? It's not the church. What is the rapture? When will it occur? Israel's next temple 
You know, we're going to look at that in a lot of detail. A lot of people call it the third temple. I'm not convinced it's the third necessarily. Solomon built a temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian captivity. God sends Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra, if you remember Ezra, and a small number of the children of Israel back to rebuild the temple. So the second temple, as they call it, Zerubbabel's temple, was not as glorious in their minds as Solomon's temple, but God prophesied something very interesting. Now, why I say it's a lot of people call the one that's to come the third, there may have been one in Genesis with Melchizedek because he was a priest in Salem. Remember in Jerusalem, he was a high priest. Uh, we don't know if there was a temple at that time or not. We don't have any record of it, but I think it's interesting. Where, what was he a priest of? There had to be something going on. Okay, look at what Haggai prophesied about the temple. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. We studied that verse a lot in Hebrews, remember? And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. That's the second temple he's talking about. The second in quotes, okay? The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter shall be greater than that of the former. This is a prophecy in Haggai 2.9, speaking of the temple that Zerubbabel and Ezra built after the Babylonian captivity. Remember in Matthew 12.6, what did Jesus say? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. And he was speaking of, obviously, himself. Um, did I miss a slide here? Aaron? Sorry, go forward one more. That's the next one. Oh, I must have, uh, I must have missed it. Sorry. Uh, what happened in between there in Haggai, that verse, the glory of the latter being that far much greater than the former is Jesus walking through the courts of it. So he walked through those courts of Zerubbabel's temple and he was the glory brought into, literally God's glory in the flesh brought into that temple, the second one, and was far greater than, than Solomon's temple. Despite Solomon's temple having more money, uh, looked grander, it was wealthier, etc., Jesus never walked in that one. He walked in the second one in the courts in the New Testament. So Haggai's prophecy was fulfilled about 500 years later. So again, it's just one of those timing things of looking at how God works in the timing. Okay, the rapture of the church. Now this is, this is so key for all of us to understand because if you understand the rapture of the church, you will not let what you see and what we're gonna study about the world today strike any fear in you. You'll run headfirst into it. You'll just, you'll just run right at it because when you see it rising up, you'll know, okay, God's promised to keep me out of this time and he's gonna bring me home. And so I have the blessed hope and the promise that lives within. Okay, when you look at, we're gonna look, work at this a little bit backwards. So Revelation 4, one through two, after this looked and I beheld the door open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was of the sound of a trumpet 
talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Okay, that come up here is the rapture. It's after this, after the church age from Revelation 2 and 3. At the end of the church age, a door will be opened and we will be taken home. That's the key. And right now, the church has a captive audience. If you haven't noticed, the world is looking for answers right now. And it's looking for where do we go to to answer what is going on with this rise of a one world government, the rise of this track and trace system, the rise of, of lockdowns, everything that's going on in the world, it is fear striking into people and they are looking for answers. You have a lot of people doing searches trying to find, uh, they can't find a good church anywhere. You find people are driving hundreds of miles on a weekend just to find a decent church now. It's gotten that bad. Okay, the church, we have a captive audience and the world is looking how we will respond as God's people. So where do we place our hope? Who do we turn to for peace in turbulence? And are we fear-stricken or overflowing with love and joy? And honestly, the entire world's lost and looking for answers. When you look at Matthew 24, 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So why does Jesus point us to the days of Noah to be like the time of his return? One reason is that there were three groups of people in the flood event. There were those raptured before the flood, Enoch in Genesis 5:24, a model of the church. Those preserved through the flood, Noah and the seven others in the ark, a model of Israel, and those who perished in the flood, as Revelation would call, the Lord refers to them as the earth dwellers. In Revelation 4:1 is the event for those raptured before the judgment. So later in the study, we'll also look at other factors that are like the days of Noah and dealing with a pole shift, animal behavior. How many of you have seen those videos of the animals going in circles all over the world? Have you seen that? If you haven't seen that, go home on on YouTube and just search animals circling around. And there are videos all over the earth of these animals grouping together and just walking aimlessly in circles. And part of it, I think, has to do with how did Noah get all these animals organized? There's something, obviously, God's in control of them, but something really weird is going on with the animals that's interesting. And something else with the core of the earth, you've probably all seen scientifically, they think the earth's core is slowing down. That's got a lot to do with perhaps a coming pole shift, like in the days of Noah, why the earth is tilted on a a 26 and a half degree axis. Okay, the anticipation of Jesus' return, it's really prevailed throughout church history since he ascended. And as the church, the body of Christ, we are to expect him at any moment. See, if you, if you live your life expecting that at any moment Jesus is going to call you home and he's going to find you doing something, it'll change what you're doing. And that's the enemy tries to grip the church in convincing them that they have to enter into this tribulation, and, which has so many signs documented, you, you would know exactly where you are in the timing. So if the rapture didn't happen, for example, until the midpoint of the tribulation, you could go into it and count to the day of when it would happen. It wouldn't be a surprise at all. Then you could get your life in order and whatever while you're running, running from the Antichrist uh, and trying to save your, your family. But Jesus is not a wife beater, so don't worry about that. He's not going to send you into that time. Okay, the doctrine of imminence. Second Thessalonians was even written to believers who were to expect his, so expectant of his return that they thought they missed it. 
2 Thessalonians is a letter that the Lord penned to correct them that they thought they missed the rapture. Luke 17, 34 through 37, look at this. I tell you in that night, there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Notice that the people are going about their business when the rapture occurs. And it's also morning, noon, and night all in one verse. So it's a testament to a round earth, first of all. You can't have morning, noon, and night without hemispheres and a globe, a sphere spinning. Because sleeping's obviously at night, grinding together occurred in the morning, and working the field was in the afternoon. So they're all, they're all doing something during the time of the day at the same time when the rapture occurs. We, we are to occupy until he brings us home from Luke 19, verse 13. Okay? We're not going to look at all these verses, but just in your notes, I listed out, this is even all the verses, but some of the verses that you need to keep in mind that God expects us to, to understand the doctrine of imminence. Imminence means the next expectant thing. It means it could happen at any moment. And when you read all these verses throughout the Bible, clearly God is wanting you to expect Jesus to return at any moment, Okay. The Greek word from where this term rapture is derived appears in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and it's translated caught up. The Latin version of this verse uh, is, uh, uses the word rapturo. That's where, that's where we get the word rapture. So a lot of the scoffers will say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, it is if you have a Latin Bible. It is there. It's rapturo. It's just in the Greek, it's called harpazo, which means to snatch or take away by force. Elsewhere, it's, just, it's used to describe how the Spirit caught up Philip near Gaza and brought him. Remember, that's all in Acts 8.39. It describes Paul's experience of being caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12.2-4. And the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is to indicate the actual removal of people from the earth, an evacuation. Now, if you hear one of the things we're going to look at, a lot of people today get into the new age, they, chant, they do channeling, they talk to spirits, uh, they, and they try to get people in the church into that by inviting you to Christian yoga, okay, or Christian yoga, every single pose in yoga is a worship pose to a false god in India, okay, every one of them. There is no Christian yoga. I hate to break it to anyone. Uh, there may be some Christian Pilates, yes, stretching, Whatever, yes. Maybe you could actually show that to us later, J.E. In the... Okay. <laughs> I think maybe you should be the greeter from now on, actually doing those poses in the lobby. But, but those, those poses, it's a way to get people into the occult and the new age. It's subtle. The enemy is so subtle and they try to put church names on it, and they try to, to throw it out as, you know, this is a new heightened level of enlightenment that you need to be a part of. It's all a lie. It's from the occult trying to get you to stray into something. Now, the people that get into it deeply, that channel these spirits and talk to demonic entities, they will tell you that those demons tell them about before they can come back and save humanity because we've gone so far off the rails of destroying the earth, before they can come back and do that, a group of people have to be removed from the planet because they will not go along with what you and I want to accomplish 
in saving the earth. See, the enemy knows the truth of the rapture and it spins a lie and tries to plant it into the church. Isn't it amazing that Satan knows the truth of it while the church argues about it day in and day out? It's incredible. But in any case, it describes Paul's experience of being caught up. So the actual removal of people from the earth. We're admonished to save some people with fear, making sure they are raptured out of the fire, the judgment from Jude 1 verse 23. And others save with fear, pulling or harpazo, getting them caught up out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And in fact, when you study the Bible, there are seven rapture events throughout the entire word of God. Enoch, Elijah, Jesus, Philip, Paul, the body of Christ, and John. And we're going to move kind of fast here because we have a lot of material to cover. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, this is the key verse for the rapture. For this we say unto you by the word of God, the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's that word, rapturo, harpazo, caught up. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. How comforting is it to know you've got to be on the run for three and a half years till the midpoint of the tribulation, you're going to starve to death, you're going to be beaten and beheaded for the cause of your king by the Antichrist, but hey, don't worry, he's bringing you home. He's bringing you home in three and a half years of that. Comfort one another with those words. That's not very comforting in my mind. That's, that's the opposite of comforting. Believing that drives one into what we call today prepping. It will drive you into stocking up. You can never have enough guns and ammo. You can never have enough guns and stored food. You cannot have enough water. Uh, I know a family that spent their entire inheritance on building a bunker to prepare for this because they believe so firmly they're going into the apocalypse. And apocalypse simply means the unveiling of, that's why the revelation is actually called the apocalypse, the apocalypto, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He is king and he's a warrior king and he is not going to let what we see in this world last for much longer and continue. And you and I have the blessed hope from Titus. We're gonna look at that. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, he's, we as the church, you and I are not appointed to the wrath of God. Correction and persecution are far different than the wrath of God. Please keep that in mind. Revelation 3.10, look at Jesus' promise but thou hast kept the word of my patience. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, the very time itself. I will keep you from and pull you out, not preserve you through, but keep you from the time of. Okay, Jesus is very specific in his words, which shall come upon not just Judea or Israel, but the time of trouble, the temptation, which shall come upon the whole world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. What's happening in Revelation 6 when Jesus starts to unlock the sealed scroll? Look at 6 verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? It's the wrath. See, the kings of the earth try to hide themselves in caves when this starts, and this is a quote. God is quoting them. 
The great day of his wrath has come, and who can stand before the lamb? The lamb that is very angry. Okay, the promise throughout scripture, this promise of the rapture, it's referred to as our blessed hope from Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, another more subtle model of the rapture is Revelation 1.12, verses 4-5. When you study that, the seven lampstands are on the earth in front of Jesus in chapter 1. Those seven lampstands represent the complete church in chapter 1, verse 20. The rapture occurs at chapter 4, verse 1, and then the lampstands are in heaven in front of the throne in Revelation 4, verse 5. It's a chronological order of events. Chapters 2 and 3 being seven letters to the seven churches. That's the most important part of the book for you and I today. Okay, those lampstands are in heaven before Jesus comes forward to take the scroll, and then he begins to break it open, and the wrath is poured out. Note the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5. They're kings and priests. There are four visions of the throne room in the Bible, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, all very consistent visions, except only Revelation discloses the 24 elders because the church was hidden in the Old Testament. So remember in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's you and I. We are kings and priests. In Revelation 1 verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, he's redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's only one group of people in the Bible that comes out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. It's the church. These are not Jews. This is the church. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. Okay. The rapture of the church, the 24 identifying characteristics of Jesus from Revelation 1, they're, they're, they're listed for you in your notes. I find that fascinating because when you look at the 24 elders, that number 24 is significant. God chose that number on purpose. Jesus, which is the head of the church, has 24 identifying characteristics in chapter 1, and they're listed there like I mentioned. The rapture of the church, if you study this, there are actually 24 time intervals in the Bible that represent the church. Now, the church is hidden all throughout the Old Testament until the New Testament, but when you study this, there are 24 gaps of time in the Bible that are undisclosed for how long they will last, but during that time, they represent the church. One of my favorites is Luke 4, 16 through 20, when Jesus opens his ministry in Nazareth in the synagogue. Uh, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, I mean, in the synagogue. It's uh, Luke 4, 18 through 20. Remember, he grabs the book and he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, set the captives free. He goes down that list. Well, he stops at a comma. And in that comma, if you go back to Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, what's after that comma is the day of vengeance of our God. See, in the, in the New Testament, he stops at that comma. He closes the book. He says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, and he hands the book back to the priest. What he didn't read is the day of vengeance of our God, because that's a gap in time between Jesus showing up the first time versus the second time. Okay, so very interesting. The restraining Holy Spirit being removed in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 9, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed. That's one of the many titles in the Bible of the Antichrist, that wicked, the wicked one, the lawless one, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth 
and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. That word letteth, the Holy Spirit who's letting to hold back, detain, retain from going away, to restrain or hinder. Okay, to hinder the course of progress of. What is hindering the Antichrist from making his appearance is the Holy Spirit that indwells you and I in the church if you are saved and born again. Okay, the order of events is really important. Let's work backwards. The seven-year tribulation starts when the Antichrist affirms a covenant with Israel from Daniel. He comes forth in Revelation 6.1 with the false covenant by the peace. By peace he will destroy many from Daniel 8, verse 25. Before he comes forth, Jesus must take the scroll. Prior to Jesus taking the scroll, the church is in heaven watching our Lord come forward in that pivotal event. And in order for him to make the covenant, he must rise to power. For him to rise to power, he must be revealed. For him to be revealed, the restraining and dwelling Holy Spirit must be removed, what we just read in 2 Thessalonians 2. So the church, as the indwelling temple of the Holy Spirit, has to be out of the way. And seven times in the New Testament, that's confirmed that you and I are the temple of God. Thus, the church must be removed. Okay, when you get to the 70 weeks of Daniel, this is so critical to understand all of prophecy. If you understand this, everything else will make sense. Okay, remember Daniel's that captive in Babylon. He is praying on behalf of his people and the angel uh, Gabriel shows up to give him a message. It starts in Daniel 9, verse 24. Gabriel always delivers a message on behalf of the Messiah. Keep that in mind. Anytime you see Gabriel, remember he's the one talking to Mary. Your son will sit on the throne of David. Okay, anytime you see Gabriel shows up, he's delivering something on behalf of our king. And he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to what? To finish transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay, 70 weeks. That word is shabuyams in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, the Jewish culture has a week of days, a week of months, and a week of years. All groupings of seven. That's where we get our seven-day weeks today is from, from the Hebrew. Okay, they have these 70. So what, what the angel's telling them is you have these 70 groupings of seven-year periods or 490 years. And what are they focused on? Thy people. Who's, who are thy people in Daniel? It's the Israelites, the Jews, and thy holy city. There's only one holy city in the whole Bible. It's Jerusalem. Okay. So what's the purpose of this 490-year period? To finish the transgression, Isaiah 53, 5. That's a, that's a prophecy from Isaiah of what Jesus did. To make an end of sins. Sin is not non-existent yet. Sin is very rampant. So this has not been fulfilled. Okay, look at verse 25, the next one. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, and verse 27 has the final week. So know therefore, and God's admonishing us, understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the temple and the wall, to rebuild Jerusalem, the wall, the street shall be built again and the wall. Okay, even in troublesome times. So you have, here's the scope of it. Seven weeks, you have 49 years, Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Then another 62 weeks or 434 years, 
unto the Messiah, then there's a gap in time. This is one of those gaps in time for us today as the church. There's a gap in time before the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period, begins to bring in everlasting righteousness. So we know that gap has taken about 1,991 years since Jesus ascended. But the 69 weeks of year between the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Jesus, unto the Messiah, the Prince. So that happened in the book of Nehemiah. Remember Ezra, they go to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah goes to rebuild the wall. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He was distressed for the condition of his people. He comes to the king with all this deep sadness. And it's all in Nehemiah chapter 2. And when the decree is given from the king Artaxerxes, to go rebuild the wall, that triggers the start of these 69 weeks of years, or 483 years. Okay, and this is all chronicled in Sir Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince. It was published in 1894. You can look it up in history. The decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, it happened on March 14th of 445 BC. Okay, so uh, keep in mind that the Lord uses 360-day years. That's the key that Sir Robert Anderson kind of unlocked when he wrote his book. God always uses 360-day years. That's why the tribulation is two, three-and-a-half-year periods of 1,260 days. It's three-and-a-half times 360, okay? But the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus happened on March 14th of 445 BC. You get 69 weeks of years, so 69 groupings of seven, times 360 days per year, you get 173,880 days. So from the commandment of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2 until Jesus rides in on the donkey to declare himself king should be exactly 173,880 days. And when you study history, it happened to the day, to the day when he rode in on April 6th of 32 AD. And there's the math for you, 445 BC to 32 AD, there's no year zero, so keep that in mind when you're doing the math. Uh, there's no year zero, and then you adjust for leap years, and you get 173,880 days to the day that Jesus rode in. So then we're in this gap of time, right? So that occurred. Jesus rides in on the donkey. Remember, he allows himself to be worshiped and declared king when he rides in fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, and they're laying the palm branches before him. It's what we call uh, Palm Sunday, in the Hebrew culture, it was something much more powerful. They thought Jesus was coming in to usher in the kingdom, but they didn't realize he had to go die because after that, Daniel 9, 26. And after this time, after the 69 weeks, after the three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, executed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, that's a title of the Antichrist. The people of the prince that shall come, that's the Antichrist. Okay, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So after the 69 weeks, the Messiah was crucified, literally cut off, and not for himself. For who? You and I. He died for us. And his death did establish that everlasting covenant. And then there's a gap in time until the trigger point of the 70th week. And here's what starts that time. This is what you and I are seeing being set up right now in the world. And he shall confirm the covenant with many, that's a term for Israel, for one week, one seven-year period. Okay, in the midst of the week, 
he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now that is fascinating because all the way back in Daniel 9, God is saying that the Antichrist, there's something about his covenant tied to them having the temple back again. So he's going to cause their sacrifices and oblations to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the opening he refers to the same person as the, the previous verse. Remember the prince that shall come. The word confirm, it means to make strong, strengthen, or to act proudly toward God. Now, if you study attributes of the Antichrist all through the Bible, he, he speaks blasphemies toward God. He is one that speaks strange, dark sentences about God and about Jesus. Now, we're going to look at a guy that fits uh, to a T almost as a prototype or a foreshadowing of the false prophet. His name is Yaval Noah Harari. If you don't know who he is, go look him up. He, is, he would be the leading candidate for the false prophet if the church was raptured today. He, every time he opens his mouth, he blasphemes Jesus. Uh, he's, a part, he's tied into the World Economic Forum. He is a Jewish man that is a homosexual that blasphemes Jesus every time he can. And he talks a lot about transhumanism. He talks a lot about what they're trying to do right now and hacking humans so that they, it's all control, right? What is the, the key characteristic of the Antichrist in the end times? It's control. He wants to control the world. And when you look at what this guy says, and we're gonna, we're gonna study them and some other folks like him in depth in the coming weeks, but when you look at what they're doing, it fits the false prophet to a T. Now remember in the, in the seven-year tribulation, there are two characters, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and then you have Satan, the dragon. So it's a false trinity. It's the, it's the Luciferian trinity that they're trying to bring in. Okay, in the midst of the week, so in the midpoint of the week, he will cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease. So we know that the temple must be standing during the final year's tribulation. We know that because Jesus makes reference to it in Matthew 24. Right here in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Holy Spirit calls it out. In Revelation, we see it. In Daniel, we see it. So look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, a great departure, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. How in the world can that happen without the temple standing? It can't, okay? The temple institute's been preparing to build the next temple for years. So again, like I said, we're just laying some, some foundational items today. The rapture and the 70 weeks of Daniel we're in that gap of time between the 69th week, 69th week and the 70th week where the Antichrist will rise up and affirm this covenant. And what happens after that, you are seeing all of the stage setting right now of the temple to be rebuilt, this one world government and system that's trying to be put in place, the church becoming Laodicean and lukewarm, uh, speaking and teaching blasphemy and heresy all over the world. But... They have the building plans. They've identified, actually, the, the descendants of Levi to train as priests. Through all of the 23andMe and the, the DNA tracking, 
they know, they can take a, a blood sample from someone now and know if they are of the tribe of Levi or not. And so they are, they are training priests with all the artifacts, the garb, everything. Okay, all they're waiting for is the okay. And it's like a three to four month process in their mind. And they also now have the red heifers. Go ahead to the next slide, Aaron. They also now have the red heifers. So remember this, just, this happened last fall. The red heifers in Israel were found to be uh, kosher without a single white hair and they were shipped over to Israel. And when they get ready, they will sacrifice those red heifers to purify the next temple. This is the one piece the Jewish people needed to make this happen. That's how close we are. And if you look at this, go to the Temple Institute website, you can see all the artifacts, everything. We're going to look at this other guy in Israel next week that uh, they are claiming to be the Messiah, that they think they're speaking to the Messiah. So when you see Israel looking at the temple being rebuilt, accepting someone as their Jewish Messiah, the Levites being trained up, all the artifacts ready, the red heifers ready to kill, they have to be about two years old for them to be Levitically pure to sacrifice them. So they're in year, they're past year one, I think, on a timing standpoint. That doesn't mean, I'm not saying next fall they're going to kill these guys and build the temple but they will be ready to, okay? So just keep that in mind. So when you look at it all, it's just amazing. Okay, God seems to, now this is just fascinating. I hope you all enjoy this. God deals with Israel in these 490 year periods all through the Bible. And this is fascinating to me because what did Jesus say? How often should, remember they said, Jesus, how much should we forgive our brethren? Seven times? What was his response? Everything's deliberate. I say to you not seven, but seven times 70. Remember that? 490 is what Jesus said. God always deals with Israel in 490 year periods. Now, when you look at this, who is the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham to the Exodus. You have the promise in Genesis 12, verse 4. It took 75 years. Galatians 3, 17, we know that you add another 430 years from his descendants coming out of the land in the Exodus. You add those together, you get 505 years but then you subtract when Israel was kind of in time out, when Abraham didn't believe God and he had Ishmael. That was a 15-year period. You subtract that out, what do you get? You get 490 years. Okay, from the Exodus to the temple. It began in 1 Kings 6, chapter 6 through 8, 594 years from the Exodus to the temple. It was a seven-year period to build it. It was completed in 1 Kings 6, chapter 6, verse 38. So you add seven of that, you get 601 years. But they're in servitude in the book of Judges for a total of 111 years. And there's all the references for you to go through. So subtract 111 out, you get 490 again. Do you see how God works this? This is incredible, how God masterfully puts this together. The temple to the decree of Artaxerxes, or the edict from him, to go rebuild the wall. 1 Kings 8, 1 through 66, you get 1005 BC. Nehemiah 2, 1 happens in 445 BC. So you subtract those, that's 560 years. But wait, they're in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So you subtract that out, you get once again 490 years that God is dealing with Israel. So once again, you get this 490 year period. 
from Artaxerxes to the second coming of Christ. Remember we just studied the 483 years from his decree to when Jesus rode in on the donkey? That was 483 years. Well, then there's this pause, this church interval that's lasted, we know, at least 1,991 years so far. And then the 70th week of Daniel, you'll have the final seven-year period for Israel, and you put those together and you get 490 years again. Now, this one, you can't, you can't subtract out the time the church is in place, which is a very unique and special occasion. So you'll be subtracting out something like, you know, hopefully no more, hopefully no more than 2,000 years, but who knows? Maybe it'll be 3,000 or 4,000. Uh, it'd be nice if it was in the next decade. I'd love to go home. But Israel is God's timepiece for human history. Isaiah 66, verse 8, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion traveled, she brought forth her child. After the War of Independence, after World War II, there was a one-year war for independence that Israel fought all the surrounding Muslim nations for one year. And David Ben-Gurion, quoting Ezekiel on May 14th of 1948, declared Israel a sovereign state. This is the greatest prophetic sign to happen in the 20th century for you and I. Because Israel was not back in the land yet. And we know from many places in the Bible, once they get back in the land, they will never again leave and God will, will build them up and usher in the kingdom. Okay, what is the prerequisite for Jesus to return to the earth? Not to meet us in the air, but physically on the earth. It's Hosea 5.15. I will go and return to my place until they, speaking of Israel, acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me, and in the Hebrew, it's with extreme urgency, earnestly. They will seek me with fervor. Okay, and their prayer is actually recorded in the next chapter, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. But that's the prerequisite. See, that's what the time of trouble is all about, is Jesus ushering this time in to drive Israel to the brink so they cry out to him to return because they missed it. That's why at the three-and-a-half-year point, they flee into the wilderness to uh, likely the rock city Petra, and they're nourished for three-and-a-half years and they cry out for Jesus to return. Okay, so that's kind of, those are two major building blocks that we've all got to keep in mind because as we go in and study all of these topics up here on the board, we cannot let fear set in. You cannot let the enemy convince you that you're going to be running for your life under a one-world government, hiding and, and trying to protect your family. That doesn't mean that we won't experience persecution as Christians in this world. But this time is a very unique time that we are plunging into that you and I are not appointed to. So some major topics we're going to look at. One world religion, depopulation. Okay, what was God's commandment to Adam? Go forth, subdue, and multiply. What is the Luciferian commandment to all, all of us on the, on the earth today? There's too many people. We're destroying the world. You and I can't have enough food to survive, so we've got to stop even breeding cattle, right? It's, they come up with the craziest things, and yet the world, God's commandment is for us to go forth and subdue and multiply. He told Noah the same thing. We are to occupy. The earth is for us, okay? It's for us. God created it for us to inhabit and to multiply. When you look at 
depopulation. Satan has tried to creep that into our culture in a lot of different avenues. Last year alone, there were over 48 million children aborted in, in the world. I looked it up uh, last two weeks ago, maybe. There's already been 4 million just in the first two months of this year. Or I'm sorry, in January, not February, but in January. If you ever want to look up those stats, go to Worldometer. They have stats on all kinds of stuff. Lawlessness, a one-world government, wars and rumors of war, artificial intelligence, this is a big one. Uh, how many of you have been keeping up with the chat GPT and Bing and Microsoft and Facebook created an AI that, two different AI computers and robots that actually invented their own language and, and were communicating with one another so that humans couldn't hear what they're saying and figure it out. And they got so freaked out, they pulled the plug on it. Well, how is the Antichrist going to know of 8 billion people on the earth, minus however many are raptured out, <laughs> and how many are, are wiped out? How is he going to know if you worship him or not in, the, in your home? It's going to be through artificial intelligence. See, Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. So he has to emulate God by creating a system that allows him to be everywhere at once. And actually, you see this over in Asia with uh, the temples and things that are not Christian, but they have these AI robots that deliver the sermon every week. And then they scan the audience through facial recognition, and they have a two or three square block radius that you're supposed to go to that temple for that week. They scan it to see, hey, were Matt and Randy there on Sunday? I didn't see them in the audience. Where were you? And then you get dinged on social credit and all kinds of things to lock you down. So you can see these systems being put in place, okay? Food supply, eating meat, which is one of the craziest topics in the, in the New Testament, that they're going to forbid us to eat meat. Synthetics, uh, they want you to eat bug proteins right now and all kinds of stuff like that. Hyperinflation, apostasy, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Transhumanism, CERN. Okay, that ties into Revelation 9, the opening of the bottomless pit. And they actually have built this on an old temple of Apollyon. And they're trying to open a gateway to the other side to let something in that you and I don't want in right now. But God is, is not going to allow that until we are gone. The Ten Kings leading up to the Antichrist. Uh, the demonic UAP phenomenon. Demonic attacks on Christians. The remnant church hacking humans. The WEF, I used their name earlier, I probably got us in trouble on YouTube for saying that, that name. A type of the false prophet, track and trace for everything, earth worship, the green dragon, uh, the next temple, Israel's readiness to receive their Messiah. You can go and just, that's just a sampling. Um, we're going to take those topics and dive into them. So what I wanted to do to close today, you know, Satan is trying desperately to pour out his spirit on our children, if you haven't noticed. Uh, God has a promise to pour out his spirit on us, but Satan's trying to emulate that by pouring out his spirit right now on our kids. If you haven't noticed, fear, anxiety, depression, anger, strife, suicide. There was a kid right here in Edmond just a couple weeks ago that took his own life. Suicide, rebellion, selfishness, chaos, discord, belittlement, false identity, you know, trying to, trying to put a, plant a seed that you don't know really who you are. God messed up in how he created you. 
so you need to transition or do something different with your life, that's from Satan. Worthlessness, brokenness, panic, shame, sickness, heaviness, the fear gripping this generation is through the roof. I've never seen anything like it. When you look at it, these kids are your children. If you're not experiencing it, I promise you, Satan wants to take them out because something is starting. There's, the Lord is brewing a generation of warriors and Satan does not want that to happen. So he is coming for our children. He does not play and fight fair. Satan will take out the weakest link in your family if it means that it cripples your walk and gets you to stop what you're doing. I promise you, he does not play by fair rules. I, I would rather him come at me all day and go to war with him in prayer with our King Jesus than to attack my children, but he doesn't do that. And so right now, the Lord really impressed this on me to close the service, especially as we're opening up to study prophecy but we've got to pray against that. And my wife uh, found this verse in Numbers chapter 30, three through five, as we were praying for our children this week. And I want all of you that are parents or grandparents in the room, you have the authority. You have spiritual authority over your children. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord and bind herself by a bond being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand. And every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth not any of her vows, or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul, if he disallows it, if, he does, if you say nothing, it stands. If you say something, it shall not stand. And the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed it. That is your spiritual authority in your household. And it's the men in this room, the, the husbands and the fathers in this room. Man, we have got to be on guard praying over our children. When you hear them say things like, I am so stressed out, you rebuke it in the name of Jesus and you capture that and you cast it out, you do not let that be a binding vow between your child and this world. And so we're gonna close in prayer uh, for our kids. And, and what I want us all to do is just, just, you pray that over your family. You do not let the enemy bind them to a vow of servitude in depression, anxiety, in strife, in fear, in suicide. Okay, it is rampant around the world. Just go home and Google suicides of teenagers these days and kids. These kids are under attack and it starts very young. And so we're going to pray over our children uh, to close out today. And next week we're gonna look into, like I mentioned today, we are setting kind of the foundation of the rapture, the 70th week of Daniel, and, but what is, we're going to start diving in next week. What is this environment that's rising up for us to look on the horizon of what God's word says about it? Because you and I are seeing the setup for the Antichrist to come in and take power. And the closer we get to it, the closer you know the rapture is near. Okay, so keep that in mind. 
Um, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, it's very simple. Romans 10, 9, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is that simple. So if you are here and you are not born again, do that. Do not leave here today before doing that. You've got to get saved. In Isaiah 1:18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's what happens. You get born again, you put on the garments of Jesus, and you are in the greatest relationship you will ever experience in your life with the one that created you. Okay, I've been holding this water for like 30 minutes, so I'm gonna take a drink before we, <clears throat> before we close. All right, keep your children to mind. Lord, we come before you. God, we know that there is no other king but Jesus. Lord, and that you did not give us a spirit of fear, fear, depression, anxiety, and stress, the attack of the enemy trying to pour his spirit into our children. God, we step into the throne room of the universe. We bring that with us Every one of us in this room that has spiritual authority over our children, we bring that into the throne room of the universe and we lay our kids at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, we pray and ask just like Michael did in Jude, rebuke those foul and unclean spirits that would look to plant seeds of death in our children. Seeds of fear, seeds of panic, seeds of anxiety, seeds of an identity crisis. Lord, by the name of Jesus, we pray that you rebuke those spirits and send them back to the pit of hell from which they came. They have no authority over our children and from numbers, Lord, your word says that if we disallow that vow, that it is taken and it is cast away. And Lord, we disallow it by the word of God that is infallible and inexhaustible and the word that spoke the universe into existence, the word of life that washes over our minds. We pray that, Lord, the water of your word wash over the minds of our children, wash over it and breathe new life into them. Let them find a secure identity in Christ, that they stand upon the rock that is Jesus, the rock of ages. That, Lord, no matter what the waves try to pummel them with, they are in a sure foundation. The enemy has no authority in their life. And, Lord, we know that you are shaping and building up a generation, a generation for your kingdom, a generation right now that is so desperate and hungry for the word of God that, Lord, they would rather spend days on end singing and being in your presence than doing anything else. And we pray that the enemy has no foothold in this move of your Holy Spirit sweeping through our land. Please, God, protect our schools, protect our children, protect this generation, and let them walk in a sure identity in the light of the world, in Christ, above all. We love you and we thank you that we have the authority in this. 
and we come into your throne room and we are laying it at your feet, Jesus. Thank you, dear God, for your hedge of protection. Be with us as we leave this place. And God, I pray that you'd give us all eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches in this time that we live. Thank you, Father. Be with us and be with our families and give us discernment on how to pray for them, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.